everyone would join me in Psalms 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. All right, my name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here at Regen. Let's pray here. Let's pause and take a moment to pray, and then we'll get started in our conversation on this psalm. Father, we are so grateful for all that you're doing in this community, through this community. We're grateful for these folks who are going to be taking the step of publicly proclaiming their faith. We're glad to be able to celebrate with them. God, it's just good to be a part of a church where you're at work and where lives are being changed. We also acknowledge, though, this morning that we come into this place in all kinds of different spots. Some of us are celebrating things. Others of us, we feel discouraged. We feel beat down. We come in with questions. We come in with pain and hurts. And God, may we be able this morning to bring all of that to you. You promise that none of that is too big for you. And so may we bring all that we have, all that we are into this place this morning, expectant that you will meet us there, that you will speak to us and that your word will be living and active in our lives. Help us to do what we need to do in response to your word this morning. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you've been around for the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark. Since Pastor Albert has returned from his sabbatical, he's been teaching us through Mark's account of the life of Jesus. We've seen or we've been reminded of just how revolutionary the life and message of Jesus really is. Jesus who comes with this urgent message. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And a lot of what our conversation has been has been around this idea of good news. What is it about Jesus that is good news? We've seen that there's these personal implications, how we respond to it individually, but there's also bigger implications than just me, right? There's these social and communal aspects to the good news, to the gospel as well. And so this morning, as we shift our attention to the Psalms, I don't want us to lose that background, that New Testament Jesus gospel background. We need to have that in the back of our minds as we turn our attention to the Psalms. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Psalms, they are one of my favorite books. I've been learning a lot more about the Psalms over the last couple of years as I've spent more time with it. If you're unfamiliar with Scripture, all you have to do is just open your Bible right to the middle. You'll probably end up somewhere in the Psalms. Okay, pretty easy to find. The Psalms are this ancient collection of songs and poems. They've been used for thousands and thousands of years to help people worship and to help people pray. And what I've come to love about the Psalms is that they are both beautiful and disturbing. Many of you will know that my wife and I, our family, we lived in Boston for about seven years before coming out here for this job here at Regen. And 
we were working with a campus ministry and the director of this campus ministry was a idea-driven guy. He was constantly coming up with new ideas for us to connect with students. One of his ideas was for us to do a devotional blog where every day somebody on staff was writing something that was supposed to be an encouragement or a challenge to our students. Our first exercise with this was to blog through the Psalms. And there were seven of us on staff, so we each had a day of the week and we each assigned a series of Psalms and we had to write about them and they got posted and sent to our students. And there's this one guy on our staff, his name is Tyler. Tyler's a very passionate guy. He's one of those kinds of people where you always know exactly what Tyler is thinking and feeling at any given moment. And there's this sort of funny moment in one of our staff meetings where all of a sudden Tyler just kind of, we were talking about the Psalms and Tyler just kind of loses it. And he's like, I hate this assignment. This is so stupid. I hate the Psalms. And we're like, whoa, can you, are you allowed to say that? He was so frustrated, but here's the thing. Tyler hit on the tension that the Psalms raised for us. One of his points was this. How can Jesus ask us to love our enemies, bless those who persecute us, but then in the Psalms we read something like this. This is from Psalm 137. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. It's a little disturbing, right? By the way, that was a song. Can you imagine Jane getting up and leading us in that song? I think we'd all be like, what are we doing? What are we singing? But this is the tension that the Psalms create. There's this tension between this beauty and some of this disturbing reality. Eugene Peterson says it this way, Psalm language is not careful about offending our sensibilities. Its genius is its complete disclosure of the human spirit as it makes response to the revealing God. Key phrase there is the complete disclosure of the human spirit. In the Psalms, we see all kinds of ranges of emotions. Joy, anger, frustration, bitterness, fear, fun, rejoicing, cries for justice, this hope in the destruction of enemies, the naming of good favor, it's all there in the Psalms. And what this teaches us, what the Psalms show us, is that nothing is off the table when it comes to relating to God. No matter how good things are, no matter how bad things might be going in our life, the only mistake that we can make in worship and in prayer is in leaving something out, is in thinking that this thing is too terrible, too awesome, too big, It's not spiritual enough to bring to God. So the Psalms, they can be a little bit uncomfortable, but it's just because they are being honest about our experience in this broken world. And they acknowledge God has to be, has to be involved in everything in some way or we're really in trouble, right? So let me say it again. The Psalms teach us that in prayer... In worship, we can bring everything, all that we are, all that we have, all that we're going through. And I think this is also really good news, right? We can bring it all to God. Now, that's sort of a background backdrop to the Psalms. Getting into Psalm 1. Psalm 1 begins to explore one of the central tensions that plays itself out all through wisdom literature, which includes the Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. And it's this tension between two kinds of people in this world. You've all heard people say this kind of stuff, right? There's two kinds of people 
in this world. Okay, here's a couple of examples. You can probably relate to some of these. Okay, two kinds of people in this world. Here's the first slide. Okay, do you get this one? <laughs> There's people that wake up with their alarm, and there are people that hit snooze. You might be married to the opposite of whatever you are. That can be interesting, I've heard. Okay, two kinds of people in this world. Here's another one. Those who cut their sandwich in half and those who go diagonal. Okay, maybe you have kids that represent these different groups. All right, third one. People who use bookmarks and people who dog ear. Mmm, yeah, I can, <laughs> I can feel that one. All right, here's the last one. This last one is near and dear to me for some strange reason. <laughs> people who clear their apps and people who don't. How can you not clear that? Oh, it drives me crazy. That little red number. All right, the Psalms say the same thing, okay? There are two kinds of people in this world. However, these categories are much more serious than what we just looked at. In the Psalms, there are two kinds of people. There are the righteous and there are the unrighteous. This was a big question all throughout the Old Testament. This was a big question in Jesus' day as well, especially among the Pharisees and the religious elite. Who's in and who's out? Who's clean and who's unclean? Who is righteous and who is not righteous? Now we need to talk for a moment about what this word righteous means because I think for a lot of us here in the 21st century, especially if you've grown up in church, you hear the word righteous and you tend to think about eternal destiny. We equate righteousness with being saved. This though is not how the Old Testament writers thought about it. This is not how Old Testament Israel thought about it. This is not how the first century Jews would have thought about it either. For them, righteousness was deeply rooted in the present moment and how we live right here, right now. Righteousness was a relational idea. It had to do with keeping covenants, covenants between people. And it had to do with whether you were able to fulfill the obligations of those covenants. If you upheld the covenant, you upheld the relationship that was represented by that covenant, you were considered righteous or just. And this is, again, really important for us to hear. Righteousness wasn't just a theoretical idea. It wasn't a spiritual concept. It was expressed in real life. It was expressed in the treatment of neighbors and coworkers, spouses and kids, friends and family. Okay, these covenantal relationships played out in multiple directions. If you were around this summer for our Genesis series, some of this language should be sounding familiar to you. We talked a lot about this, this idea, this biblical idea of shalom. Shalom refers to the way God intended the world to function, the right ordering of God's good creation, the way that things were intended to be, right relationship between God and people, between people and between people and the rest of creation. Now, all of this brings us to the very first word in today's text. So if you have that in front of you, take a look at that. The very first word in today's text is that word blessed. Blessed is a huge signal word, a blinking, flashing light reminding the reader of shalom, of God's first word of blessing over his creation. 
So again, we need to keep in mind this idea of righteousness is connected, it's holistic, it's bigger than just what happens to us after we die. Now let's talk a little bit about how this psalm explains what the righteous person looks like. Okay, so the blessed person, the righteous person, first of all, avoids doing three things. They avoid walking in step with the wicked, standing in the way of the sinner, and sitting in the company of of mockers. Now what's interesting about this is there's this progression here, right? You see that walking, standing, sitting. This tells us something I think about how sin, about how anti-shalom, if you will, forces work in our lives. We've got this table here in the front. Imagine on this table is your big temptation, whatever that might be. Maybe it's gossip, maybe it's porn, maybe it's ice cream. I don't know what it is for you. (laughs) So whatever that is, it's sitting there, it's on that table, and this is how it works, right? We kind of go, we're walking along, we're minding our own business, and out of the corner of our eye, oh man, I see ice cream. That looks good. But you're walking, right? You're moving around. You're not totally focused on it, but it's kind of there. It's become aware in your mind. And then next thing you know, you're sort of standing next to it. And you're like, wow, that ice cream is chocolate. I think there might be some caramel in there. That looks pretty good. Now you're standing next to it, right? And the next thing you know, you're sitting down with it. I don't know about you, but when you're sitting down in front of a bowl of ice cream, I'm going to eat it, (laughs) right? There's no more debate at that point. It's just I'm going to eat that ice cream. Now here's the interesting thing about this progression is the way I just described it. It's all personal, right? It's all personal. It raises some really good questions for us. What are we walking by? What are we standing near? What are we sitting down with? But again, this Old Testament worldview, the the worldview of Jesus' time as well, it was so much bigger than that. And so in a Hebrew worldview, a shalom theology would have seen this progression in a much more connected way. And even look at the language that the psalmist uses, right? These are all about who you're with. Okay? The wicked, sinners, mockers. So maybe an even better way of asking these questions is who are you walking with? This is another way I think of asking the question, what sort of systems are you just a part of? Maybe even just passively, you're just a part of this. You're walking in it. It's just there. Who are you standing with? Are you standing with people of power, people who make you look good, people who sort of uphold your view of the world? Who are you sitting down with? The word here that the psalmist uses is the word mockers, sitting down with mockers. Now, again, all throughout wisdom literature, mockers are kind of the worst kind of unrighteous person because not only is the mocker sinning or violating shalom however you want to talk about it they're also making fun of those who are trying to go a different way so to begin the blessed person the righteous person avoids these actions and these people walking standing sitting with those people but then positively is blessed, is righteous because they delight in the law of the Lord. They meditate on his law day and night. Delighting in the law of the Lord. For the Old Testament 
reader, singer of this psalm, the law, again, a huge signal word, would have spoken to them as Torah. What we know as the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Torah. Now again, for us in the 21st century, for those of us who have been in church, who are kind of living in the New Testament grace era, we hear law and we hear bad, right? We hear rules, legal language, we hear works-based theology, we hear consequences and punishment. But again, for the original audience, Torah was so much more than that. It was not just a list of rules to follow. It was a way of life. And the word Torah comes from the verb yara. Everybody say yara. yara. Hebrew is a lot of fun to say out loud. Yara means to throw something like a javelin or a dart or a baseball. Pick whatever sport speaks to you. <laughs> it's to throw something so that it hits its target. It hits its mark. Torah is the word that hits its mark. Torah was to be delighted in and meditated on so that the words of God got inside of the reader or the hearer. Torah was not an encyclopedia. It was not a reference book. It was not the kind of thing that you'd pull down off the shelf when you needed to answer a question or just sort of mindlessly memorize so that you had information. It was this living, active, personal arrow straight from God's heart to human hearts. It was intended to reveal all the ways that we walk and stand and sit with things other than God. Intended to reveal our need for the personal God, for Yahweh, who desires to have restored relationship with us. So Torah is more than just things to think about or words to know. It was a way of life. Now again, we can sometimes think of that as that's like an Old Testament thing, but Jesus, the writer's in the New Testament, who talk about Jesus, pick up on these themes. Look at John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. He says, in the beginning was what? The Word. In the beginning was the Torah. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Also notice all of the allusions back to Genesis chapter 1. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then skip down to verse 14. The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John develops these Old Testament ideas to say Jesus is the word. Jesus is Torah. And then look at how Jesus talks about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying I am Torah. I am law. Follow in my way. Delight in my way of life. Meditate on my words. Theologian Kevin Van Hooser says it this way, Christian faith is neither a metaphysical nor a moral system, but a way. It's not a system. It is a way. A shape of covenantal life with others and with God. There's that language, that language of righteousness. Okay, so the righteous avoid the way of the unrighteous. They also delight in the word of God. And then there's one more picture, one more metaphor that the author uses here to help us see the difference between these two ways of life. And it's this picture of a tree. Verse 3, that person, that blessed person, that righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water. 
which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Trees play an important role throughout Scripture. They're representative of a lot of different things. We don't have time to unpack all of that. But trees, especially their leaves, were seen as life-giving, even healing. What does the author say about this tree? It's planted by water. It yields fruit. It's life-giving, healing property. It does not wither. It prospers. Now the psalmist immediately contrasts this tree, this incredible tree, with the wicked who are like chaff that the wind blows away. Think of sawdust. Just So sit with those two pictures for a minute, okay? This tree, this immovable, regal tree, and chaff blown by the wind. What do these pictures teach us about the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked? First, the way of the wicked is full of activity. Walking, standing, sitting. And there's a restlessness to that activity. But hold that in contrast with the righteous, the tree. Do you ever go up to the redwoods? Isn't it amazing that we live 10 minutes away from redwood trees, these incredible forests? Do you ever go up there and go, man, these trees are in a hurry. They need to chill. (laughs) No, we go up there. We go for a walk in the woods or we sit and contemplate life in the woods because it's calming, right? There's this sort of steady presence that trees have. The way of the wicked, again, marked by frenzy, hurry, restlessness, anxiety. The way of the righteous, steady, strong, immovable, calm, rooted. The way of the wicked for all of its activity is ultimately deconstructive. This is the second thing we learn here. It's temporal and fleeting. It doesn't have any kind of healing or life-giving properties. In fact, look at how the psalm ends. The very last word there is that it ends in destruction. The way of the wicked, the way of the unrighteous ends in destruction. That's the opposite of life-giving, of productive. The way of the righteous is generative, healing, productive. Then finally, the way of the wicked has no root, no anchor, nothing to hold on to. It's just chaff blown to the wind. The way of the righteous is grounded, has a foundation, is anchored in something. Anchored in Torah. God's personal, aimed word expressed most fully in Jesus. Richard Foster writes, this is one of my all-time favorite quotes. He says, the desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Psalm 1, the way of the righteous is about becoming a deep person. Look again at that quote. I think this quote is really interesting because he sort of pinpoints a couple of ways in which people try to apply this but miss the point. So the first one, many people today call for more intelligence. Honestly, our world could do with a little bit more intelligence. This is sort of summed up in the $10 word, theological word, orthodoxy. Orthodoxy literally means right opinion or right belief. The idea here is if we could just teach people the right information, if we could just get it into their brains, then we would see more righteousness. 
Now, believing the right things, super important. Okay, we want to have right beliefs. And our beliefs do shape how we live. But there's a danger or a distortion here. Because this view reduces people essentially to walking brains. We all know people who know all the right things, can quote scripture front to back, but there's some righteousness lacking in their life. Look at the other part of that quote. There are those who also call for more giftedness in our world, who say, beliefs are great, but what really matters is action, what we do. We need more doers. The fancy theological word here is orthopraxy, right action, right practice. Now again, this is really important. What we do matters. We should all be practicing more love, more tangible acts of care for our broken world. But orthopraxy can be dangerous because on the surface it looks really good, but underneath it can oftentimes be very empty. The Pharisees made these two mistakes, right? We've seen this all throughout our study in Mark. One example, the issue of the Sabbath. Pharisees had their orthodox beliefs don't work on the Sabbath. They had their orthopraxy down. They had defined all the actions that you could and could not take. They had their right Sabbath actions down perfectly. But they could not answer this question that Jesus asked them. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Remember, this is a scene where there's a man who needs to be healed. Jesus is about to heal them. The Pharisees are freaking out. Jesus asked this question. They cannot answer it. They remain silent. Look at how Jesus responds to their orthodoxy and their orthopraxy. He was angry. Deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And of course, he stretches it out. His hand is healed. And how do the Pharisees respond? They begin plotting to kill Jesus. This is very early in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus exposes their empty, their chaff-like orthodoxy and orthopraxy. The Pharisees have not allowed the personal javelin-like word of God to pierce their stubborn hearts. What they are missing is what we might call orthokresis. Orthokresis means right judgment, right discernment. It means wisdom, wisdom that leads to right relationship. To help us understand what orthokresis looks like, this is going to be where we'll land here this morning. Take a quick look with me at Luke chapter 19. There's a famous story about a wee little man. All the church kids laughed at that joke. Here we go, Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. But all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Here's what's amazing about the Zacchaeus story, okay? 
There's no theology course, there's no doctrinal statement, no list of right beliefs that Zacchaeus needed to write or agree to for Jesus to say salvation has come to this house. In the same way, there was no orthopraxy manual. Jesus doesn't pull out this thing that says, okay, now that you've repented of the sin of tax collecting, here's what you have to do. But Zacchaeus has this interaction with Jesus. The Son of God, the Word made flesh, comes to his house Jesus here risking his reputation, risking community backlash. And we don't know exactly what happens in their conversation, in their interaction. But again, the word made flesh, the living, breathing Torah, hits its mark in Zacchaeus' life. It reveals to him his unrighteousness and it transforms his life. And Zacchaeus becomes righteous. He discerns what needs to be done to restore relationship with his neighbors and with those that he has cheated, and his actions are costly. But they're grounded in this new relationship that he has with Jesus. His sacrificial actions bring shalom to his community. That is what orthokresis looks like. Wisdom leading to right relationship. Now, there's a lot of good questions that this psalm raises. We've asked some of them already, okay? What are you walking, sitting, standing with? Who are you walking, sitting, standing with? Good questions to think about. Do you delight in the law of the Lord? Are you meditating on his words? Good question to think about. I want to come back, though, to that foster quote. The desperate need today, what our world needs today, is not for more intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. In this room, I look around, there are some very smart people here. People who know the Bible, who can quote scripture, but are we deep? There's also a lot of very gifted people in this room. Some incredible talents. But that metaphor of that picture of that deeply rooted, life-giving, healing tree, does that describe your life? Here's the thing, we become deep by spending time with Jesus. Not by getting more information about him. Not by mimicking his actions. By spending time with him. Zacchaeus moved from unrighteous to righteous, watch this, when Jesus walked by, when Jesus stood with him, and when Jesus sat down and had a meal with him. If you want to be a deep person, spend time with Jesus. Walk with him, stand with him, sit with him, and you will become a tree. Planted next to streams of water, fruitful, lasting, productive. Let's pray. Father, this morning we confess ways in which we've been walking and standing and sitting with things other than you ways we've participated in the way of the unrighteous. But we also come today grateful that the invitation is simply to be with you, to accept what you have done on our behalf so that we can have right relationship with you and with others. Father, I pray this morning, again, there's good things that we need to think about and consider, tangible practices that we maybe need to implement or change in our lives. But ultimately, God, we desire to be deep people, deeply rooted in the Torah, in Jesus, the Word made flesh. 
So God, as we close our time this morning in communion and in worship, in prayer and in worship, may we bring all that we are and all that we have before you. May we just be able to spend time with Jesus. Amen.